Hello and welcome back to The Last Week in Medicine, where we help you stay up to date on the latest internal medicine literature by sharing our favorite articles from the last week. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today we have a returning guest host, Dr. Danny Babel. Welcome back, Danny. Thank you, Stephen. Happy to be back. Glad you guys lowered the bar again for me to be on the show. Oh, that's nonsense. I mean, you had Barb <laughs> Jones on the on the podcast last week. That, that was pretty special. Hard yeah. Hard to fill, yeah. Well, you know... T- that was a, an unusually cool week, but <laughs> I learned a lot. Hopefully everyone else oh, did. I learned a lot, yeah. Yeah. So, and then we'll excuse Austin this week because he is uh, somewhere in the backcountry of Wyoming skiing, hopefully uh, being smart and not dying in an avalanche. So, yes. yeah. so uh, what's new with you? Um, well, not much. Um, I uh, am going to vote later. Haven't voted voted yet today. yes i also need to go vote today yeah so. everyone i guess it, by the time you're hearing this you won't be able to vote anymore <laughs> but hopefully you will That's have true. voted so yeah so yeah. it's super tuesday uh 15 states are voting for their nominee today and including our state of utah so uh who'd you vote for danny just kidding. You don't well, have I haven't to tell voted us. yet. Oh, that's right. Who are you going to vote for? But it is confidential. For? Okay. I'm voting for Warren. Woo! She's not going to really? win, but I just really like I her. I actually. Oh, look uh, at you. Just spilling the like, beans. Hopefully we don't lose listeners because of our political preference. Mm, that's fair. Yeah, we try not to go into politics too much, yeah. but there was that one time. Yeah, I thought you were all about feeling the burn. I mean, but... I like Bernie, but I like Warren better. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. it's time for a woman president, let's be honest. Man. And she's Seriously. also the youngest person now running, if you exclude Tulsi Gabbard, yeah. who everyone excludes. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry if you're a Tulsi lover. Um, anyway, yeah, Bernie was here, though, yesterday for a rally, and I was not able to go because patience. working. Yeah, yeah, patience, you know, yeah. sick people. Yeah, I couldn't go either. Speaking of sick people, do you have a Myself. cold right now? Yeah. So I'm, like, sitting, like, <laughs> six feet away from you. <laughs> Well, really only two feet, but... Yeah. it's uh, It's been a bad winter, you know, for many reasons, but uh, <laughs> which I think you're going to get to. Oh, yeah, sure. I guess we could segue now to the coronavirus. Yeah, that's, you don't that's think you have that, right? reference I was making. I'm pretty sure I don't. I haven't been anywhere fun. Um, I have been sick. I haven't been on a cruise ship times. recently Definitely off not. the coast of Japan. Definitely not. Okay. Um, and this is like my fifth upper respiratory infection of the winter so oh no kidding um i've probably had a lot of other things yeah do you wash your hands very often i'm just kidding no i don't really believe in that (laughs) okay well yeah i mean we briefly mentioned the coronavirus outbreak (coughs) a month ago there was pretty limited data available back then and i wasn't like really excited to talk about it again but like when i was reading the literature this week that's just like all that's out there like every yeah. journal is publishing tons of stuff on the coronavirus like if you look in pubmed there's like 700 things about coronavirus now specifically this virus so i was like all right we should probably review that again look see what's been published so far so as of uh, february 27th there have been more than 82,000 confirmed cases with 2800 deaths The actual number of cases is probably a lot higher than that uh, since we're not testing a lot of people still. Um, And the virus does have an official name now. It's the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2. And people infected with the virus, um, we say they have coronavirus 
uh, infectious disease or COVID-19. So that's the official name of the disease that you get from the virus, COVID-19. It's an RNA virus, and it's genetically similar to other bat-derived SARS like coronaviruses. And um, people think it probably originated with chrysanthemum bats, which I'd never heard of before. And there's probably an intermediate host between bats and humans. Uh, some people think it's the pangolin, which is an adorable scaly anteater. I think they're kind of creepy looking. That is the pangolins. <laughs> they're endangered, though, and often well, sold sad. illegally for Eastern medicine in Chinese live animal markets. They, so some people think that's where this outbreak started. But uh, Transmission occurs via large respiratory droplets in direct contact, um, but it can also be detected in GI tract, stool, saliva, blood, and urine. So that raises concerns for other modes of transmission. Uh, there was a report in the New England Journal of Medicine where they monitored viral loads in the upper respiratory tract of 18 patients in China and found high viral loads in the nose and throat of patients before they even developed symptoms. Yeah. So that's kind of scary that asymptomatic people could easily be spreading it. Incubation period <coughs> ranges from 1 to 14 days uh, with a median of 5 to 6 days. And each infected person is expected to infect 2 to 3 other people, which is a higher reproductive number than seasonal flu so that means that it's not going away anytime soon. Mm -mm. There was a new article in the New England Journal on February 28th by the China Medical Treatment Expert Group for COVID-19, and they looked at 1,099 patients with confirmed COVID-19 from 552 hospitals. Median incubation period was four days, and 5% uh, of infected patients were admitted to an ICU, 2.3% required invasive mechanical ventilation, and 1.4% of patients died. Uh, five patients got ECMO, and patients with severe diseases were a median <coughs> of seven years older than patients with non-severe disease, so definitely seems to affect the older folks more. Most common symptoms were fever and cough. Half of patients had ground glass opacities on their CT chest. 18% uh, had normal radiographic imaging. Uh, interestingly, 83% of patients had lymphocytopenia, so that might be a clue in the future. Uh, JAMA also had a summary report published on February 24th from the Chinese CDC, and they had 72,314 cases with 44,672 confirmed cases by sequencing, and 14% of the patients were classified as having severe disease, and their um, fatality rate was 2.3%. So um, the case fatality rate out there is, you know, still in flux. It's probably lower than the current numbers of 1% to 2% since we aren't testing a lot of the asymptomatic folks. We don't know for sure. According to the CDC website today, which may or may not be accurate since I think the president has kind of quashed their ability to release up-to-date information, um, there have been 43 cases diagnosed within the United States that were spread in the United States, as well as the 45 people from the Diamond Princess cruise ship and three people that have been repatriated from Wuhan, China. And we have had two deaths in the U.S. so far. Uh, there's been one confirmed case in Utah, a man who was on the Diamond Princess cruise ship where at least 700 people were infected. He was initially quarantined in California on an Air Force base before testing positive. He has not had any symptoms but was admitted to an isolation unit uh, at one of our local hospitals. So interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I just got back from a conference in Irvine, California, and there were a bunch of scientists from all over the world, uh, including Italy. So 
I was a little paranoid, but so yeah. far I'm feeling pretty good. That doesn't really say anything, though, right? <laughs> I could be spreading the disease yeah. and not know it. So anyway, much well, to look forward to, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, Stephen and I actually just got back from retesting our PAPR certification. Is that what you would call it? Yeah, I guess so. We had to prove that we could put on the PAPR machines correctly. Yeah. Very fun. So we're ready. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have not been fitted yet for the N95, but, you know, I probably don't even need to since they're all sold out now. And there won't be any N95s right, by scarce. the time the virus comes. Yeah. Those N95 makers need to up their game. Yeah, so worrisome. I think, you know, as the flu starts to die off, we'll just probably have a continuous surge of respiratory illnesses. And yeah. hopefully our hospitals can handle it. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about something more exciting. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be more exciting than that. <laughs> All right, well, what you got for us? Coronavirus. So this is actually on the topic of infectious disease, um, and I will preface this with the fact that I'm not an infectious disease expert. I mean, we're both hospitalists, so we're not experts at anything, right? Um, I, you know, sometimes I'm a thrombosis expert. Right, right. In fact, you're on consults right now, so yeah, you're technically right a thrombosis expert. Sorry, we never get tired of that lame joke. <laughs> So today I'm going to be talking about an article. Uh, it was published last week in JAMA Internal Medicine by Roel Willems, titled The Evaluation of the Associ- Association Between Gastric Acid Suppression and Risk of Intestinal Colonization with Multidrug-Resistant Microorganisms. Drug resistance, as many of you know, is an increasing threat to our global population. Resistance to antibiotics will likely be one of the main public health problems of the next decade, among the many other things that the next decade has to worry about. Hmm. I just want to talk briefly uh, for a little bit of context about a few types of drug-resistance mechanisms or drug-resistant organisms, which may be reviewed for you, Stephen, but hopefully um, might help in um, providing context for the article. First, there are the extended spectrum beta-lactamases, or ESBLs, Mm -hmm. which are found in gram-negative bacteria. They confer resistance to third-generation cephalosporins, most beta-lactams, and astrionam. The enzyme initially was discovered in Klebsiella pneumonia in Germany in 1979. Besides Klebsiella, E. coli, acinetobacter, Burkholderia, citrobacter, enterobacter, proteus pseudomonas, among others, are affected or can acquire ESBLs. Rates of ESBL uh, producing organisms have also been increasing in the U.S. In other countries, I was actually surprised to learn that the ESBL prevalence is even higher than here, reaching 60% in Klebsiella pneumonia isolates from Argentina and 48% in E. coli isolates from Mexico. Yeah, I had a patient one time who just like came back from a business trip in Africa and his urine just randomly grew ESBL, E. coli, and, yeah. that, and like he's not like a guy who'd gotten any antibiotics totally. before. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, importation from overseas, and yeah. it's how we kind of spread, uh-huh. spread these resistant organisms, unfortunately. Um, the, rep- the preferred option for treating ESBL-producing organisms right now are the carbapenems, a very broad-spectrum antibiotic. We love our carbapenems. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, Unfortunately, though, there has been emergence of a carbapenem hydro- hydrolyzing 
uh, beta-lactamase, beta uh-huh. rendering this antibiotic class now effective for some organisms. Womp womp. Yeah. Bringing us a step closer to the challenge of extreme drug resistance. Hey, there's always colistin. Exactly. <laughs> that's kind of what, uh, that's what people have to use for these carbapenem-resistant organisms. Just like pure organisms. poison. Yeah. Just, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. KPCs or Klebsiella pneumonia carbapenemase, um, that's the most common carbapenemase in the United States, probably the one that most people have heard of. Um, mm-hmm. not yeah, good. I've seen that one Not around. good at all. Yeah. And then the other class I'll just briefly mention um, are the VRE mm-hmm. bugs, vanco-resistant enterococcus, which is another brand of, I'll, I'm just going to say MDRO from this point on because mm-hmm. multidrug-resistant organism is a lot to say. Um, it's another class we have to worry about. Vancomycin resistance is encoded by a cluster of genes. Uh, the vast majority of VRE isolates are Enterococcus fecia. And mm-hmm. like ESBL organisms, VRE is also on the rise. Yeah, I feel like I'm seeing that a lot lately yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's contributing to the rising prevalence of MDROs? There are several risk factors for colonization with MDROs. And you just mentioned one, international travel, i.e. bringing home a resistant strain as a souvenir. Mm-hmm. Um, Something but, you'll never forget. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Something you best just leave in uh, the home country. Um, it, antibiotic use is probably the biggest. Yeah. But age, underlying illness um, are other risk factors for being colonized with an MDRO. Do we think it's like antibiotic use patterns in those countries that have led to the emergence of these MDROs and then they're coming? Because like some countries, you don't need a prescription to get antibiotics, right? Like you can just go. You can buy you can just at the store. Well, I don't know about Miropenem, but like, yeah, you could just go get some, you know, amoxicillin, <coughs> clavulanic acid, and boom, you're set. Yeah, that's a really good question. I would love for a real infectious disease expert to weigh in <laughs> on that at some point. Um we are learning that the gut microbiome is a very important player in rates of colonization. Mm-hmm. In healthy humans, the, glut, the gut flora in each individual is actually pretty stable. And when we eat pathogens, they're cleared pretty easily by our commensal flora. So I can just eat bacteria yeah, you're, and it'll just well, die Assuming your stomach. gut microbiome's intact and healthy, yeah. you'll probably be okay. Cool. Yeah. And that's um, why I, I let my kids just eat stuff off the ground at, yeah, the, at the park. Yeah, build that microbiome up, you know. Yeah. It, it starts young. <laughs> um, we do know that disturbing the peace of the gut microbiome can be really bad. And antibiotics are the maybe the biggest destroyers of the gut microbiome. Definitely. They're very efficient at destabilizing mm-hmm. um, our, our guts. Um, and even just a brief course of antibiotics can induce changes in your gut flora for up to four years hmm. later. Yeah. No kidding. So that like dose of vancomycin you get in the ER before transferring up to the floor can potentially cause someone to have issues for years afterwards. So a lot of people are looking at how our gut microbiome plays into the emergence of MDROs. Recent as evidence has implicated the use of acid suppression therapy hmm. in colonization with MDROs. It kind of makes sense because inhibiting stomach acid secretion can change the composition of the intestinal microbiome, Mm -hmm. which impairs our gut's defense mechanism against colonization by exogenous bacteria. Does make sense. Acid suppression therapy is all too common. (sighs) 
Yeah, big surprise there. Data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey found that nearly 8% of U.S. adults used proton pump inhibitors or PPIs. PPIs. And, yeah. They're good for what ails you. I'm kind of surprised it wasn't higher, honestly. But that was um, a uh, doubling compared to rates um, just uh, 10 years prior to that. Uh-huh. Well, now they're like over the counter, right? Oh, like yeah. I can just go to Costco and, and come home me, with some Nexium. Sometimes, <gasps> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, but maybe I won't anymore. Uh, the percentage is even higher in older people, though. It, it as much as seventeen percent of people aged sixty to seventy-nine are on PPIs. The crazy part is that as much as fifty to seventy percent of PPI usage is inappropriate, based on either incorrect in, an incorrect indication or failure to stop when it's no longer needed. And it's probably usually the latter. Right. Right. We start people on them after they have a peptic ulcer, and then they stay on them in perpetuity. Even when you have GERD, acid reflux, like you're supposed to take them for two weeks and then kind of stop. Like it's not it's not an indefinite indication. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember in residency, I developed this oddly personal vendetta against PPIs, mm. and I found a lot of joy in discontinuing <laughs> people's omeprazole on discharge. Uh huh. Just felt like Just I was like doing something good for them, making a difference. Yeah, <laughs> that small difference, you know. Okay. So this study wanted to see if use of acid suppression therapy, specifically the use of PPIs, as opposed to histamine receptor antagonists. Um, we're not looking at those class of medications in this review, whether usage of PPIs was associated with colonization of MDROs. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis. They were all observational studies. They did, however, only look at studies with enough data to calculate odds ratios and their corresponding 95% confidence intervals. The outcome of interest was intestinal colonization with target MDROs, though there were a couple of studies that looked at UTIs um, as these are considered to be sort of a proxy of rectal carriage. They found 26 eligible studies. 19 of the studies looked at multi-drug resistance enterobacter, and seven uh, of the studies looked at vancomycin-resistant enterococci. Mm-hmm. One study uh, out of all of them looked at carbapenemase-producing organisms. Of the 26 studies, 12 of them adjusted for confounding using multivariable analysis, and these were the studies that they included in their primary analysis. These stu- these well, that was still like 22,000 patients. Right, it was, so it most was the large the majority. Yeah, um, yeah 22,000 included in those 12 studies, and 38% of those folks were on an acid suppressant. Mm-hmm. In the primary analysis, they found that acid suppression was associated with colonization with an MDRO with an odds ratio of 1.74, 95% confidence interval of 1.40 to 2.16. The same results were found with a secondary analysis of all 26 studies with an odds ratio of 1.7. Acid suppression was associated with multidrug-resistant enterobacter carriage, um, specifically with an odds ratio of 1.6, as well as VRE with an odds ratio of 1.97. The association was actually larger for carbapenemase-producing enterobacter, or excuse me, uh, organisms than for ESBLs. Overall, this study found that acid suppression was associated with a 75% increase in the odds of intestinal MDRO colonization, 
both in the community and in the healthcare setting. These are all observational studies. Mm -hmm. So obviously the results should be interpreted with caution. They can only show association and not causation. Yeah. Um, and they're only looking at colonization, which we know is an increased risk of developing an infection with an MDRO, yeah. but is not always clinically significant to be colonized with one of these organisms. Like who knows what I'm colonized with, Yeah. right? We don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to know. <laughs> Um, I like and agree with the author's conclusion that PPIs should be used when needed. Yeah. There are times when we should use Absolutely. them. Absolutely. But we should stop them in the fifty to seventy percent of fifty to seventy percent of people that are on a PPI that don't need it. Sure. Yeah. Um, as we know that they can have some adverse health effects, potentially this being one of them. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because PPI use is a minor criteria point in the drug resistance in pneumonia score or DRIP score uh-huh. developed here in Salt Lake, which I think you guys have talked about on our previous pods, mm-hmm. podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, our inaugural episode. Yeah. Oh, wow. The DRIP Way score. Way back then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think this is an interesting thought and um, maybe worthwhile to target, but probably a far bigger problem that would help in mitigating the risk of MDROs would just simply be antibiotic stewardship. Sure. Cutting back on unnecessary or overbroad spectrum antibiotics. For sure. This is maybe just a little drop in the bucket, but Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thought nonetheless. Yeah. I think it's interesting with PPIs because they've kind of, they are ubiquitous, right? A lot of people are on them, not everyone's on them. So, People have done lots of observational studies to see, are PPIs linked with dementia? Are they linked with chronic kidney disease? And you can find these signals in observational studies that show maybe there is a a correlation, but at the same time, like, there's so many confounders there. Like, are these just, like, sicker people (laughs) with lots of medical problems? And they're the ones who end up getting put on PPIs, right? Because, like, they have arthritis and they're taking Eliquis for their AFib and then they get an ulcer. Now they're on a PPI and then it gets (laughs) left on forever. So at some level, like, the PPI may be kind of a surrogate for telling you that this person has a lot of medical problems. But, like, I don't know, I found this this particular article, like, fairly compelling as far as at least showing, yeah, these folks tend to have higher rates of colonization, and so that's worth looking at. I don't know if this trial alone would convince me to go on a, a PPI-stopping rampage. Oh, I'm but already there. Yeah, because <laughs> part of me is, like, whose job is that, like? You know, there's, there's, uh, you got your med rec and, you know, pharmacists are talking to the patients and you can ask a patient why they're on a medication. And a lot of times they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like, why yeah. are you on this omeprazole? And how much digging I don't know. Do? Yeah. And maybe two weeks ago they did <coughs> have a GI bleed, but they don't know why they're on the omeprazole. You know what I mean? So it yeah. gets a little tricky being like, why are you on this omeprazole? Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, if they don't know why they're on it and they're not deriving benefit from it, absolutely deprescribe, right? Like we should be doing that with all medications mm-hmm. that patients are on. And, and I think this paper just gives more ammo to that argument for sure. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, the last article that I wanted to share is from the Journal of Hospital Medicine, and it's titled The Impact on Length of Stay of a Hospital Medicine Emergency Department Border Service. It was originally published online November 20th, 2019, but now it's in the March issue of the journal. 
And the first author is Dr. Kimiyoshi Kabayashi from Johns Hopkins. The rest of the authors look to be from Mass General. And uh, these guys are trying to answer the question, can they decrease the median hospital length of stay by providing hospitalist level care to patients boarding in the emergency department? So this was an interesting paper to me because as a large academic medical center, we are constantly dealing with the bed availability problem, right? Like the word's out, this is a good hospital, we give good care. So like people come here and because of that influx of people, like we just don't always have the capacity to deal with it. And so, especially if there's like a big surge in patient admissions, like during flu season, it's not unusual to have more patients than beds. And so we frequently end up with people boarding down in the emergency department. But at our hospital, as soon as you accept a patient from the emergency department and see them, like they're technically your patient, they're on your service. So we put in orders and the, you know, theoretically the emergency department nurses do the orders. And, uh, you know, there is that sign and held orders feature of our electronic medical record. <coughs> we use Epic. So sometimes your admission orders don't actually become active until they come up to the medical floor. Um, but you can end up with a few patients down in the emergency department that belong to you. And so usually, you know, after I'm done rounding on my patients on the regular medical floor, then we make a trip down to the emergency department to round on those patients. Yeah. And it's annoying, right? But like, those are your patients. So you go see them down there, wherever they are. Right. And uh, apparently that's not how it's done at other hospitals. So this group, uh, at least at their hospital, did it differently. So, um, and I think the hospital they're talking about is Massachusetts General. They don't explicitly say that in the paper. Um, But I guess they don't actually assume care of the patients until they get a bed and come up to the medical floor. And so while the patient is in the emergency department, they are an emergency department boarder and the emergency department is responsible for their care. So that means if the patient is down boarding in the ER for 20 hours, like they're technically still under the care of the emergency physicians. Seems like a bad system to me because you can imagine patients being forgotten or neglected or the workup um, not happening in a timely fashion. So the way they decided to deal with this was to create a separate hospitalist service that takes care of ED boarders down in the emergency department. So they had one physician on and two advanced practice providers during the day and one physician on at night. And their maximum service was 25, but it looked like they were um, mostly keeping it to 10 patients or less on that service. So an emergency department border was defined as a patient who was waiting for an inpatient bed for more than two hours after the bed request was entered. Eligibility for the service was determined by the emergency department um, board, like the hospitalist team down there. And for the purposes of this study, if a patient was eligible for the service but not covered by the hospitalist team, they were called non-covered emergency department boarders. And as soon as an inpatient bed became available, the ED boarders would be handed off to the hospitalist upstairs. And patients who were admitted directly to the floor were called non-boarders. So in their study period, there were 16,668 patients admitted from the emergency department to the general medical service. 53%, so over half, were admitted to this uh, emergency department border group that was covered by hospitalists. 35% were (coughs) in the non-covered emergency department border group. So those were folks that were still in the emergency department boarding, but couldn't be admitted to this hospital service because they were already at capacity. 
And then only 12% were able to be admitted directly to the floor from the emergency department within that two-hour window. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, so <laughs> most of their patients are boarding in the emergency department, which sounds like a nightmare. Sounds like they need a new building. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that tells you something about how busy their hospital is if only 12% are getting upstairs yeah. within that two-hour window. So the primary outcome they're looking at was median length of stay, Non-boarders, or people who were admitted directly to the floor, had the shortest length of stay, 4.76 days. Covered ED boarders, so patients boarding in the ER, covered by a hospitalist, had a median length of stay of 4.92 days. And uh, the non-covered boarders had a median length of stay of 5.11. So there was a difference of 4.6 hours. In their overall hospital length of stay. Mm-hmm. This is the median, so. Yeah. Um, so covered ED boarders had a longer median ED length of stay compared to non-covered ED boarders and non-boarders. So it was 20 hours for the ED boarders who were covered, 10 hours for the non-covered, and 5.6 hours for the patients who got to go right up to the floor. So I'm sure that's in part due to patient <coughs> selection. Um, they were more likely to accept, I'm sure they were more likely to accept patients that they thought would be down there for a while. Right. Um, but despite that longer emergency department length of stay, they were still discharged from the hospital faster. Uh, so 30-day ED readmission rates were similar among the groups. Um, so yeah, I think it's an interesting paper, maybe in part because it opens up my eyes to like how things are done at other hospitals. And I'm like, that's wacky. Yeah. I like the way we do it here better. But we're a little spoiled because we just opened two new floors of medical beds. And so... I think our emergency department border rate is going to hopefully stay low. Oh, it's definitely gotten better, you know, since that's yeah. opened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it would be super annoying, too, if you were, like, the ED border hospitalist team. You're admitting these patients, and then, like, eight hours later, a bed opens up, and you're sending them upstairs. Right. They mentioned that kind of, like, sort of lack of continuity. Yeah. So that you're adding care. handoffs. Yeah. Disruption there. Interrupted workup. Like, I don't know. So I don't know. I guess... My take on this is like maybe other places should just do it like we do it, where you assume open care. A new floor. Well, <laughs> open a new floor because that's super cheap and easy. Right. Or you just assume just care of the patient when you accept them. And I guess I don't know logistically like what their hospitals like. Like maybe right, it's maybe a mile ER. away, <laughs> and so like it's just like not so feasible to go see the patient in the ER. Yeah. But like for us, it's just downstairs, right? You hop in the elevator yeah. and you go to the first yeah. floor and you can see your patient. So it is funny because they well they had to hire new people to fill these roles right? right and then they had they they were taking up ed beds right so which they would have been in those ed beds anyway probably true but yeah but yet now they're at least getting hospitalist care but yeah they had to hire extra people to make this work right right and they didn't i don't know if they really i don't know they decreased the length of stay by 4.6 hours so i don't know if that was really worth yeah. worth it to them but um the other interesting thing is like you have to kind of train the nurses in the ER who aren't used to giving like floor level care right. um, to, to do that kind of stuff. And then also like an other ancillary staff, like, you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, at least at our hospital, like they never go to the emergency department. And so like, that is a problem when we have boarders down there and like, you're just waiting for a PTE valve yeah, yeah. to decide like, can this person go home with home health or do they need to go to a skilled nursing facility? And like, you're just waiting for PT. So sometimes I'll call them and be like, can you go see this patient down there? But like, it's super you know, outside of their normal workflow. So that would, that's a big, you know, barrier, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of challenges associated with alleviating the receiving end 
pressures, right? Or, or mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of our we get we get pressure to discharge people fast. Yeah, discharge you know? early in the morning right, if you can, right. so it opens up beds Which in the afternoon. Is maybe helpful in some ways, but it's realistically a challenge, as we all know. Um, trying to get those early discharges mm-hmm. when our patients live in other states. Yeah, we have a big catchment area, yeah. so we're yeah. we deal with a lot of other logistical hurdles yeah. for sure. It's, it's a it's a it's a very difficult issue to tackle. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm not in charge of it. <laughs> <laughs> tackling it. <laughs> well, you know, as the coronavirus continues to surge, um, I'm sure that this emergency department boarding thing will remain a salient topic. Right. So. Yeah. All right. Well, we're over time, so uh, that's all we got for this week. Thanks for uh, sticking it out to the end. Uh, if you want to give us feedback, please tweet at us at Last Week in Med. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank <laughs> you.